from New York, this is Democracy Now! The plaintiffs invited the Supreme Court to not only strike down ICWA, but to gut the legal foundation of tribal sovereignty. And yesterday, in a stunning defeat for the plaintiffs, the Supreme Court said no. In a surprise decision, the Supreme Court votes to uphold the Indian Child Welfare Act in a major victory for tribal sovereignty. We'll get the latest, then go to Montana, where calls are growing for authorities to investigate the death of Micah Westwolf, a 22-year-old indigenous woman who died after being hit by a car driven by a suspected white nationalist whose children are named Aryan and Nation. Then we talk to Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen of Maryland. He's calling on the Biden administration to declassify its report on the death of Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akhla, who was shot dead by an Israeli soldier. This is an American citizen. We have a duty to pursue the facts wherever they lead, as Secretary Blinken himself said. And we look at the black maternal health crisis following the tragic death of Olympic track and field star Tori Bowie, who died last month home alone after going into labor. It highlights the problem where black mothers are, you know, not receiving the appropriate care and succumbing to issues that really um, are treatable and normally wouldn't have such uh, awful outcomes. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Greek authorities have arrested nine Egyptian nationals and charged them with people smuggling after their overloaded fishing vessel capsized and sank in deep waters off the coast of southern Greece Wednesday. Over 100 people were rescued, but hope is fading for an estimated 500 others who remain missing. That includes as many as 100 children who witnesses say were traveling below deck. It's the deadliest shipwreck off the Greek coast this year, possibly among the deadliest ever in the central Mediterranean. Protests in support of the migrants have erupted across Greece amid reports that a Greek Coast Guard vessel escorted the trawler for hours and failed to properly render aid as the vessel capsized. On Thursday, Greek opposition leader Alexis Tsipras visited with survivors at the port of Kalamata, where he condemned the European Union's policies on refugees and migrants. I want to say there are huge political responsibilities with the migration policy that Europe has been following for years, a migration policy that turns the Mediterranean, our seas, into watery graves. And I think it is time to speak the truth, because this policy has to change. Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott has taken credit for sending dozens of migrants to Los Angeles in a move condemned by Democrats as cruel and inhumane. It's the latest in a series of similar moves by Republican governors in recent months. On Wednesday afternoon, a busload of 42 migrants, including eight children, arrived in Los Angeles after a 23-hour ride from McAllen, Texas, without food, they said. Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass blasted Abbott, writing in a statement, quote, it's abhorrent that an American elected official is using human beings as pawns in his cheap political game, she said. Los Angeles City Council member Onesis Hernandez also condemned Governor Abbott. He's obviously a, 
a person who's been elected that is not strong enough to meet the moment in his state. But that's okay because all these people here in Los Angeles and in California are more than capable of welcoming these folks here because Los Angeles is a place and a city for everyone. And we'll keep pushing for our sanctuary policies to make sure that immigrants and migrants know that they are safe here, that they are welcome here. 1.3 million immigrants make up the city of Los Angeles. They are the nervous system, the heart of this city, and we have their back. Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed a bill Thursday barring transgender college athletes in Texas from competing on sports teams that align with their gender identities. This follows other anti-LGBTQ legislation recently passed in Texas, including a ban on gender-affirming care for transgender minors. In Ohio, Republican lawmakers have merged two anti-LGBTQIA bills into a single piece of legislation. The Ohio House is set to vote next week on the combined bill, which would ban puberty blockers or hormones for everyone under 18, bar transgender women and girls from female-only sports teams in Ohio, schools and colleges, and forbid Medicaid from paying for gender-affirming care for youth. It would also limit discussions of gender identity and sexual orientation in classrooms. The ACLU report it's tracking 491 anti-LGBTQ bills in the U.S. during this year's legislative session. The Supreme Court has upheld the Indian Child Welfare Act in a ruling that protects Native children from being removed from their tribal communities for adoption or foster care in non-Native homes. In a stunning 7-2 ruling, Justice Amy Coney Barrett rejected an argument from Republican-led states and white families who argued the system is based on race, writing, quote, in sum, Congress's power to legislate with respect to Indians is well-established and broad. Indigenous leaders are celebrating Thursday's ruling, saying the 1978 law helps to preserve their families' traditions and cultures. After headlines, we'll speak with Rebecca Nagel, Cherokee writer, award-winning journalist and host of This Land podcast. In Texas, at least three people were killed Thursday as a tornado tore through a trailer park in Panhandle City of Perryton. More than 75 people were injured. About 200 homes were destroyed. There's triple-digit heat in the forecast for the region this weekend, with temperature records set to fall in Houston and New Orleans and 10 million people under excessive heat warnings through Saturday night. Authorities on Mexico's Pacific coast say hundreds of wild birds that have washed up along the shore died as a result of abnormally warm ocean waters resulting from the climate crisis and the warming trend known as El Nino. Mexico's health ministry reports at least six people have died this year from heat-related illnesses with more extreme temperatures forecast for this weekend. On Thursday... The European Union's climate agency said global surface air temperatures briefly rose by more than 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels earlier this month for the first time ever. That's the maximum global temperature rise agreed to under the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. Here in New York, United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres said Thursday countries must immediately phase out the burning of coal, oil and gas, calling them incompatible with human survival. Guterres also accused fossil fuel companies of attempting to kneecap progress on the climate crisis. Current policies are taking the world to a 2.8 degree temperature rise by the end of the century. That spells catastrophe, yet the collective response remains pitiful. We are hurtling towards disaster, eyes wide open, with far too many willing it all on uh, wishful thinking and proven technologies and silver bullet solutions. It's time 
to wake up and step up. As Secretary of State Tony Blinken makes his way to China to discuss the war in Ukraine, U.S.-China relations and other issues, Russia has fired a fresh volley of missiles on Ukraine's capital. Earlier today, explosions rang out across Kyiv, where Ukraine's military claims it shot down six hypersonic missiles, six cruise missiles and two reconnaissance drones. The daytime attacks came as seven African heads of state, led by South African President Cyril Ramaphosa, visited Kyiv in a bid to kickstart peace talks between Ukraine and Russia. Meanwhile, top Pentagon officials called Thursday for U.S. allies to continue pouring weapons into Ukraine. Speaking from a meeting of the Ukraine Defense Contact Group in Belgium, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin asked allies to, quote, dig deep to provide Ukraine with air defense systems and more ammunition. Joint Chiefs of Staff Chair General Mark Milley acknowledged Ukraine's military is suffering heavy losses as it presses a counteroffensive against entrenched forces in eastern Ukraine. There are several hundred thousand Russian troops dug in and prepared positions uh, all along the front line. Uh, and uh, Ukraine has uh, uh, begun their attack and they are making st- uh, steady progress. This is a very difficult fight. Uh, it is a very violent fight uh, and it will likely take a considerable amount of time and at high cost. A federal grand jury has indicted 21-year-old Air National Guard member Jack Teixeira on six counts of willful retention and transmission of classified information over the recent leak of highly classified Pentagon intelligence documents. Teixeira has been jailed since April. If convicted, he faces up to 10 years in prison for each charge. Teixeira is accused of violating the same part of the Espionage Act used by federal prosecutors to charge Donald Trump over his mishandling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. Trump was released without having to pay bond after pleading not guilty at his arraignment in a Miami federal court on Tuesday. Back in the United States, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union has reached a tentative agreement on a six-year labor contract covering some 22,000 dock workers at all 29 ports along the West Coast. The deal, which is subject to ratification by members, caps more than a year of negotiations after the union's previous contract expired last July. And Nevada Governor Joe Lombardo has signed legislation allocating $380 million in public funds for a new Major League Baseball ballpark in Las Vegas. The bill clears the way for the athletics to apply to the MLB to relocate from Oakland, California, where the team has played for over half a century. Oakland A's executives hired more than a dozen lobbyists to press lawmakers in Nevada's capital, Carson City, to approve a $1.5 billion stadium, arguing it'll create jobs and boost Las Vegas's economy. Writing about the move in The Nation magazine, sports editor Dave Zirin commented, quote, this is about billionaire sports owners demanding socialism for the rich and seasonal service industry work for the laboring class. They are urban hostage takers demanding a king's ransom from the public trough, Siren wrote. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We begin today's show with a major victory at the Supreme Court in a case that could have gutted Native American sovereignty. On Thursday, the court upheld the 1978 Indian Child Welfare Act that protects Native children from being removed from their tribal communities for fostering or adoption in non-Native homes. Tribal leaders say the law helps to preserve their families' traditions and cultures. 
In a stunning 7-2 ruling, Justice Amy Coney Barrett rejected an argument from Republican-led states and white families who argued the system is based on race, writing, quote, In sum, Congress's power to legislate with respect to Indians is well-established and broad. Justice Neil Gorsuch wrote in a concurring opinion, quote, the Indian Child Welfare Act did not emerge from a vacuum. It came as a direct response to the mass removal of Indian children from their families during the 1950s, 1960s and 1970s by state officials and private parties, unquote. Many are also taking note of the final paragraph of Justice Gorsuch's opinion. It reads, quote, often Native American tribes have come to this court seeking justice only to leave with bowed heads and empty hands. But that is not because this court has no justice to offer them. Our Constitution reserves for the tribes a place, an enduring place in the structure of American life. It promises them sovereignty for as long as they wish to keep it. And it secures that promise by divesting states of authority over Indian affairs and by giving the federal government certain significant but limited and enumerated powers aimed at building a lasting peace. In adopting the Indian Child Welfare Act, Congress exercised that lawful authority to secure the right of Indian parents to raise their families as they please, the right of Indian children to grow in their culture, and the right of Indian communities to resist fading into the twilight of history. Gorsuch concluded, all of that is in keeping with the Constitution's original design, unquote. Meanwhile, Justices Samuel Alito and Clarence Thomas both wrote dissents, with Thomas objecting to, quote, regulating state court child custody proceedings of U.S. citizens who may never have even set foot on Indian lands merely because the child involved happens to be an Indian, unquote. For more on all of this, we're joined in Oklahoma by Rebecca Nagel, a Cherokee writer, award-winning journalist who followed this case closely in a piece for the nation headlined, The Story of Baby O and the Case That Could Gut Native Sovereignty. She's also the host of This Land podcast. In season two, she's been reporting on how the far right is using Native children to attack American Indian tribes and advance a conservative agenda. Rebecca, welcome back to Democracy Now! Please first respond to this, what shocked many uh, Native American tribes and communities, um, and also tell us the story of Baby O. Mm. Thank you, Amy, so much for having me and for covering this important issue. Really what happened with this case is that for the past decade, special interest groups have used this law, the Indian Child Welfare Act, as a vehicle to launch a broader attack on tribes and tribal sovereignty. And so the arguments that they invited the Supreme Court to adopt would have not only gotten rid of the Indian Child Welfare Act, but it would have really destabilized uh, the area of law a lot of people call federal Indian law. Um, And instead of taking that invitation, the Supreme Court responded with a very, very strong no. Um, One of the ways that these special interest groups have advanced these cases is by really misrepresenting the facts on the ground and what happened when these non-Native foster parents tried to adopt Native children. Um, So it's a complicated case. There's multiple foster parents. One of those couples 
examples is a couple named the Librettis from Nevada. Um, when a child was placed uh, with them through Safe Haven, within a few weeks, um, her father was identified. It was identified that her father um, was a descendant of a federally recognized tribe and that she was eligible for enrollment. And the process started for her to be placed with a family member. Um, and the Librettis response to that was extraordinary. I mean, they wrote a letter to that child's grandmother asking her to disenroll so that ICWA would not imply. Um, they managed to rope social workers into their plot who either refused to call relatives who were possible placements or when they made those calls, tried to talk the relatives out. And um, basically, uh, Nevada social workers strong armed the tribe into entering a settlement. And so and we found, you know, stories like that in all of the underlying custody cases. And so what really happened in this case was rather than non-native foster parents being able to adopt, uh, being prevented from adopting native kids, for the most part, they won custody. And the people who faced the real hurdles were the native relatives who just wanted to keep keep their young relatives and their family. And so what ultimately happened to Baby O and how did this case make it to the Supreme Court? So Baby O, like um, many of the other children in the underlying custody cases, all of the children in the underlying custody cases have been adopted and those adoptions are final. And so um, Baby O was adopted by the Librettis, and that's who she's being raised by, um, despite there being several uh, blood relatives that came forward during her case who wanted to raise her. And that was one of the things that um, I was relieved to see in the Supreme Court case. You know, this case has been on stilts since it was filed in federal court. All of the underlying adoptions have been long final. And normally, when that happens, a lawsuit is over. You know, there needs to be a controversy for a lawsuit to uh, move forward. And I think one of the things that the Supreme Court signaled in this ruling is that it is more dedicated to the rule of the law and the rule of civil procedure than the politics of this case. Because one of the things that um, the plaintiffs invited the Supreme Court to do was to ignore those things and instead to make a political decision. And they rejected that, which I think is good, not just for Native nations and families, but for the rule of law. So, Rebecca Nagel, can you talk about the the comments of Justice Neil Gorsuch, Amy Coney Barrett? These are some of the most conservative members of the court. And the fact that this shocked Native Americans around the country. And to also talk about why would, oh, organizations like gambling casinos be very invested in this case? When you talk about, by the way, ICWA, that's the Indian Child Welfare Act. Yeah, so the special interest groups that have been attacking ICWA for the past decade kind of fall into three buckets. So it's a handful of private adoption attorneys. And if you look at the private adoption industry, they've fought basically any regulation that would result in there being less children who are available for adoption. Um, there are some right-wing organizations like the Goldwater Institute. We also found a lot of um, money flowing into the anti-ICWA campaign from the Bradley Foundation. And then who's 
really spearheading uh, the effort now is a law firm called Gibson Dunn um, and a lawyer there named Matthew McGill. And last January, the other shoe dropped. And so they actually, Gibson Dunn and Matthew McGill filed a lawsuit on behalf of a casino developer saying that uh, tribal gaming was racial discrimination against him because he could not make as much money as the tribes. And so they've basically used the exact same arguments that they're making to attack ICWA to attack tribal gaming. And so I think the hope for them was that if they won this case, they could sort of have the follow-up case to attack tribal gaming. And fortunately, they were unsuccessful. Um, the, you know, a lot of people are surprised by Gorsuch and Barrett. Um, I'm not. I, I, I think that if you listen to oral arguments, Barrett was really positioning herself in the middle on this case. And so when I saw that the uh, opinion was authored by Barrett, I, 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 I had a sigh of relief with that news. And then as I continue reading, I was, you know, <laughs> I was even more relieved. Um, you know, we've had a lot of liberal justices that have sat on the bench that have not been friendly to tribal sovereignty, because I think that they don't understand it. Um, you know, I think Justice Ginsburg is somebody that people point to a lot. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I think it's it, it, it is good for tribes to have justices that really understand the law and how that law relates to the Constitution. I think what Gorsuch did in his concurring opinion that we almost never see, that we almost never see, was that he talked about the long history of um, the U.S. government removing Native children from their families. And the reason that that is important is that he's talking about why ICWA is important from the perspective of Native people. And I think that often our perspectives and our stories and our histories aren't told at venues like the Supreme Court. So to see that coming from a justice was really powerful. And so where does this case go from here? in terms of Native American law, um, U.S. law? Yeah, so, you know, in the past decade, ICWA has been challenged almost as many times as the Affordable Care Act. Um, this case is the closest and the furthest they have ever gotten in their effort to overturn ICWA. And they got a very, very strong rejection from the Supreme Court. And so I think time will tell whether or not they will um, bring other cases. Our reporting found other cases that are still sort of in family court that these corporate lawyers are swooping in um, to represent non-Native families. So they'll continue to do that. Um, and, you know, what's next for the Supreme Court is yet to be seen. You know, the past few years, we've had some great decisions. We've had some bad decisions. It's been a bit of a roller coaster. But I think um, you know, what's important about this case is that we're seeing not only the Supreme Court, but I think the public show more of an interest and more of a knowledge about the Constitution and tribal sovereignty and how all these things work. Um, I think some of our biggest barriers at the Supreme Court has been ignorance. And I think seeing that knowledge come out in the Supreme Court opinion um, is really encouraging. Rebecca Nagel, we want to thank you for being with us, Cherokee writer and award-winning journalist. We'll link to your piece in The Nation, headlined, The Story of Baby O and the Case That Could Gut Native Sovereignty. She's also the host of This Land podcast. Coming up, we're going to Montana, where calls are growing for authorities to investigate the death of Micah Westwolf, a 22-year-old indigenous woman who died after being hit by a car driven by a suspected white nationalist. Her two children's names are Arian 
and nation. But first, we'll talk to Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen of Maryland. He's calling on the Biden administration to declassify its report on the death of Palestinian-American journalist Shirin Abu Akleh, shot dead by an Israeli soldier. Stay with us. Police, by if I don't see you in the future, I'll see you in the pasture. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Biden administration's continuing to face criticism for its response to the killing last year of Palestinian American journalist Shireen Abu Akleh, who was shot in the head by an Israeli soldier as she was reporting on an Israeli military raid just outside the Janine refugee camp in the occupied West Bank. The Al Jazeera reporter was shot while wearing a blue helmet and blue flak jacket, clearly emblazoned with the word press. Shireen Abu Akleh was one of the most prominent TV journalists in the Arab world. She was also a U.S. citizen. NBC News recently reported the FBI has not yet spoken to any key witnesses in the case. Israel's refused to cooperate with the probe, and Palestinian journalists who were with Shireen at the time of her death say the FBI has never contacted them. Many of the journalists who witnessed her death spoke to Al Jazeera correspondent Sharifa Belkadus for the documentary The Killing of Shireen Abu Akleh, which just won a George Polk Award. This is Shireen's producer, Ali Al-Samudi, who was also shot that day. When we made sure that there were no confrontations, we started walking slowly, with slow steps. And about 25 seconds later, here they are walking with Shada and Mujahid up the street, all in their press jackets, just past the spot where Salim had a view of the military. <laughs> Suddenly, a round of bullets was fired. I shouted, Shireen, they're shooting at us. We have to get out of here. Just as I was saying, we have to get out of here, my shoulder exploded. I shouted, Shireen, I was shot. Or I said, Shireen, they shot me. After the first bullet, I was able to jump behind a short wall to take shelter. Shireen and Shatha reached me to jump and get out of the place, but they couldn't. They started firing at us. I immediately pressed record. I saw Ali was wounded. He walked away. Shireen was behind the tree. I could still see her hiding behind the tree. 
The last words that Shireen said was, Ali has been wounded. Ali has been wounded. I mean, these ears, every day, all the time, Shireen's voice is repeating in my ears. I stepped forward again and they started saying, Shireen, Shireen, but they shot at us again. I have a blank spot in my mind. I don't remember how I got behind the tree. I got behind the tree and turned around to see if Shireen could come to where I was. At that point, I saw Shireen falling to the ground. I didn't understand that she had been gravely wounded. I stepped forward and saw Shireen on the ground. I'm holding the camera. I bend down. I want to walk to walk toward Shireen. The whole time I wanted to shake her, to touch her, to move her. But I was also filled with fear because the tree was what was protecting us. And if I moved her, maybe she would be wounded again. I remember when I saw the blood on the ground, when the blood started coming out, that's when I realized that she had taken a bullet to the head, and I started shouting, it's her head, her head. An excerpt from The Killing of Shireen Abu Akla from Al Jazeera English's current affairs program, Fault Lines. The documentary recently won a George Polk Award for foreign television reporting, one of the highest awards in journalism. Investigations by Al Jazeera, The New York Times, CNN, and other news outlets have challenged the official Israeli version of Shireen's killing. We're joined now by Democratic Senator Chris Van Hollen of Maryland, who's called on the U.S. State Department to declassify a report on Shireen Abu Akhla's death on May 11, 2022, conducted by the U.S. Security Coordinator for Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Senator Chris Van Hollen joins us now from Kensington, Maryland. Uh, Thanks so much for being with us, Senator. Can you start off by explaining what this report is and what you're calling for. Well, Amy, it's uh, good to be with you. Uh, This was a report uh, conducted by uh, General General Fenzel and his team. He's the U.S. Security Coordinator for Israel and the Palestinian Authorities. And he conducted a extensive review of what happened in the killing of Shireen. I should emphasize that his report is not an independent investigation. Uh, And he was not able to conduct an independent investigation uh, because, as you indicated, uh, Israeli authorities have not cooperated uh, with the government. Uh, That's information I've received from the State Department. In other words, requests to deny uh, the soldier in question or other uh, members of the IDF unit um, have been denied. So it's not an independent investigation, but uh, it does shed very important light on the conduct of the IDF unit in question on the day of the shooting of Shireen, and also more broadly reaches conclusions about the conduct of other uh, IDF units um, in the West Bank. And it's my view that 
the report should be declassified uh, because it, it is important to getting to accountability uh, in the shooting death of Shireen Abu Akleh. And I believe its release will help save lives going forward. So what has the Biden administration said about releasing this document and what process does it have to go through? Well, they have not yet uh, responded to the request to release the document. I should say that in this particular case, uh, the final classification process has not yet been completed. Uh, the overall report uh, that I review, um, after much insistence, has is classified top secret, but uh, it has actually not gone through its final classification process. Uh, so we are very focused right now on making the case that it's important to release the findings of this document to ensure a greater accountability uh, in the shooting death of this American citizen and journalist. It includes important information uh, on on her the killing of Shireen, and because uh, I believe that it will uh, reveal additional information uh, that will would, would hopefully result in more accountability for IDF units uh, on the West Bank, something that uh, President Biden has called for and something that uh, Secretary Blinken has called for. Senator Van Hollen, how does this report differ from the U.S. Security Coordinator's report from last year, which you were very critical of? Well, as it turns out, last year's report was not really a report. It was just a very cursory finding, a conclusion based on a very preliminary review, not of independent information, but information that had been provided by the Israeli government, uh, by the Palestinian Authority. Um, so it turned out that there was no real report there when we asked for it. So now the USSC has conducted an, an extensive uh, review uh, of all the in, all the analyses that have been done uh, and reached certain judgments about um, what happened that day um, and certain judgments uh, again about the conduct of of other IDF units and I just think it's really important uh, that this report which is um, not a paragraph like the original you know findings, uh, but an eight-page report, uh, I believe it should be released. And why is this report classified as top secret in the first place? Well, that's a good question. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that the findings um, are clearly critical uh, of the conduct of the IDF unit in question. Uh, and again, this is why Secretary Blinken uh, has also called upon the government of Israel to review its rules of engagement uh, on the West Bank. Uh, and he's been rebuffed. In other words, the government of Israel told him to go take a hike. Um, and that's another reason it's really important that this report be released. I wanted to play for you Shireen Abu Akleh's niece. I interviewed her in December. This is Lina Abu Akleh. We were actually very encouraged uh, by the news that the FBI will be investigating. This is something we've been calling on from day one since Shireen was a U.S. citizen. And it's the duty of uh, the United States to investigate any crimes uh, uh, 
carried out by a foreign army outside towards against the U.S. citizen. And we stand ready to support uh, the U.S. in conducting this independent and thorough investigation, following all the evidence uh, where it leads up and down the chain of command. And we've seen how Israeli army is uh, unable and unwilling to investigate themselves. That's why it's really important for the FBI to be investigating. And we also hope that the, uh, the United States FBI will employ all tools necessary to get the answers that we've been, uh, we've been asking regarding the killing of Shirin, but also uh, to lead to accountability and justice. That's what we want. Uh, we want there to be accountability. We want there to be justice. So that's Lena Abu Akla, the niece of Shireen Abu Akla, who was killed on May 11, 2022, as she covered uh, a U- uh, Israeli raid on the Janin refugee camp in occupied West Bank. Um, Sh- Shireen is a U.S. citizen. Shireen is a Palestinian-American journalist. Senator Chris Van Hollen, what obligation does the United States have when it believes another state, in this case an ally, Israel, has killed a U.S. citizen? Well, it's my belief that uh, the United States has an absolute obligation uh, to get to the bottom of what happened, uh, to hold the individuals accountable uh, or, in this case, potentially the, the IDF unit accountable. And that is something that we should do when you have the wrongful killing of a U.S. citizen. Look, you know, President Biden has been eloquent uh, about calling for the release of uh, U.S. Uh, journalists uh, who, are, who are currently detained uh, around the world. He's been eloquent um, about trying to get to the bottom of what happened to Austin Tice, as have I in both those other cases, determined to try to make sure that uh, American citizens and and journalists um, are protected. That same protection needs to extend to American citizen and journalist um, Shireen Abu Akleh. And that is the obligation of the U.S. government, and it is a still unfulfilled obligation uh, the FBI has also opened an investigation into the case. Do you know anything about this investigation, Senator? Well, uh, my understanding is the FBI investigation is ongoing, uh, although the FBI will not publicly confirm uh, whether or not the investigation is ongoing. But my understanding is the FBI investigators have, have talked to some people. But you raised a very important point, um, which is that Uh, The FBI will also ultimately require the cooperation of the government of Israel uh, to be able to make any final conclusions with respect to an independent investigation. Right. The the investigation done by the U.S. security coordinator was not an independent investigation because he was not allowed to interview um, witnesses, um, including members of the IDF unit uh, in question. And the FBI, in my view, is going to have a very difficult time uh, making independent judgments uh, as to exactly what happened uh, that day without the cooperation of the government of Israel. Uh, And that is another reason it's important 
that the Biden administration uh, press harder. Are you going to demand that at least the FBI, even if they don't have access uh, on Israel's side, to the Palestinian journalists who were there that day, one of whom was shot, who were not contacted for this report? Well, the FBI certainly should be uh, interviewing all the witnesses, uh, including uh, the witnesses uh, that you just mentioned, Al Jazeera uh, journalists that were on the ground and, and others. Yes, the FBI uh, should be doing uh, all of that. And did the U.S. security coordinator's report shed any light on Israeli claims of crossfire, since video footage and eyewitnesses dispute this? this. Um, and also, since you read it, did the report confirm whether or not there is more body camera footage from the IDF unit from the moments around the shooting? Well, uh I can't get into the details uh, of the report because it is uh, still classified. But uh, let me just say the conclusions of the report, I believe, um, if made public, uh, would result in saving lives. Um, and I do believe would bring more accountability to this case because that does shed very important light on the conduct and misconduct of the IDF unit in question. Uh, so uh, th this is exactly why I think it's important that the uh, report uh, be declassified. Let me ask a final question. The first USSC report uh, found no reason to believe the killing of Shireen Abu Akhla was intentional. Does this new report come to a different conclusion? Well, this new report cannot shed any new light on the question of intentionality because uh, the USSC was denied access to the witnesses. You, you know, it's my view that you can only get to the state of mind of individuals uh, by interviewing uh, the individual who pulled the trigger, as well as those that were immediately around uh, that soldier. Um, and so long as that access is denied, uh, you can't shed any more new light on that question. Senator Chris Van Hollen, I want to thank you for being with us. Democratic Senator from Maryland calling for the release of the U.S. government report on the shooting death of the Palestinian-American journalist Shireen Abu Akhla. Coming up, we go to Montana, where calls are growing for authorities to investigate the death of Micah Westwolf, a 22-year-old indigenous woman who died after being hit by a car driven by a white nationalist. We'll speak with Micah's parents. Stay with us.
That's Michael Westwolf playing a ukulele. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. This week, community members in Montana held a series of justice-to-be-seen walks to ban justice for many Indigenous people killed or hit by vehicles there along Highway 93. They're focusing on Micah, on Micah Westwolf, 22-year-old Indigenous woman struck and killed in March by a driver. She was walking home along the highway in the early morning hours. The driver was identified as Sunny White, a suspected white nationalists whose two children who are in the car are reportedly named Aryan and Nation. They were in the car at the time of the crash. Sonny White has not been charged in connection with Micah's death. Micah Westwolf was a member of Blackfeet tribe, also Dine, Cree, and Klamath. She was an avid athlete and poet. This is Micah speaking in 2016 about graduating from Big Sky High School. My name is Michael Westwolf. I'm a student at Missoula Big Sky High School and a member of the Blackfeet Nation. I am also Navajo, Cree, and Klamath. Earning a high school diploma would mean that I could get into a good college or um, help my people get a good job. My mom helps me a lot because she always helps me out with my work when I'm struggling or she always gets after me to do my work and always tells me to try my hardest and tells me that I can do anything I want if I just put my mind to it. My plans after graduation is to go to the SKC College. What I want to do is there's a program there that um, is like you can be a dentist's assistant and that's what I want to do. Micah Westwolf speaking in 2016. Her life was tragically cut short in March. And for more on the calls for justice in her death, we're joined in Washington, D.C. by Erica Shelby, a tribal legal advocate for missing, murdered Indigenous women. And we begin in Arlie, Montana, with Micah's parents, her mother, Carissa Heavyrunner, and father, Kevin Howard. Our deepest condolences for your loss. Can you tell us about your daughter, Micah? What kind of person she was? What were her aspirations? And why you're walking now? Why you're on this walk to demand justice? Um, hi. Um, yes, Micah was a very loud, curious, energetic, very intelligent active uh, little girl um, until she was, you know, a young woman. She read a lot. She did a lot of writing. She got to travel uh, all the way to Nepal. Uh, she had a love for out being outdoors. She wanted to hike everywhere, camp in the mountains, um, travel. And she wanted to go back to Nepal and climb the mountains there. She fell in love with it there, and she danced powwows and she before she could walk, and I had to help her. And uh, she just was a strong, intelligent Native woman. And she, I know she would be right here if uh, wasn't in this situation for fighting for justice for my daughter, and it was for someone else. She would be right beside me. She was a little activist. <laughs> we're doing this walk uh we we want we want lake county to to investigate these kind of crimes um something that uh, in the past they haven't done um so if they're not going to do it we're going to 
we're going to do it for them and we're, or we're going to force them to do it. And Erica Shelby, you're in Washington, D.C. Explain what you believed happened. Um, was this an unintentional car crash, just a tragedy? Or why you believe uh, that Michael Westwolf may have been deliberately run down? Well, when we spoke with James Lapotka, the county attorney, um, he explained to us that, you know, the talks had come back on Sonny. Uh, he had also taken it for Micah, which we still don't know why. Um, and she had trace amounts of fentanyl and meth uh, nanograms. Um, that was Sonny? There was no skid marks, no brake marks. Yeah, Sonny White. And so... The driver. Um, the driver. And so, I mean, it's not regulated like THC or, or uh, alcohol where you can give it a DUI at a certain percentage. So how we understood it is you can, it's legal to have these in your system and be on the road. Um, but if they're trying to tell us that that wasn't a factor in her driving, well, then it can only leave that this was intentional. And what does skid marks have to do with anything? The fact that there weren't skid marks. What does that say to you, Erica? You know when you hit a deer. You know when you... We live in Montana. We hit deer. You know when you hit something. And the fact that she didn't break, that she didn't swerve, that there's no sign of that... Um, tells me, it indicates to me that at least it needs further investigation. And he can go off of, you know, the county attorney Lapotka said, you know, that nothing indicated that it was intentional to him. That's very superficial. And he's explained to us that he doesn't make determinations until he gets final reports. So how is he making determinations like that? And what are you doing in Washington, Erica Shelby? What are your plans in bringing this case to the nation's capital? Carissa and Kevin started this walk, and at the beginning, uh, we didn't know how big it was. And then we got there, and there was so many people, and everybody has the same story about the same players, the same agencies, the same police, the same attorneys. And it's enough is enough. And, and they've been alienated, and they're isolated, and they're made to look crazy, and they eventually burn out this system um, it breaks us down. It, where, where they're supposed to serve and protect, they're victim-blaming. They're breaking us down. Um, they're over-criminalizing us. Uh, we're over-represented in prisons. We're over-represented in the missing persons cases. We're over-represented in the murdered cases. We're only 5% of the state population, but in 2021, we were 30% of the missing uh, people's population. So something has to change. And I'm here to get the attention of the people in D.C., Tester, uh, Danes, uh, Murkowski, um, Schatz, everybody on that Senate Committee for well, Indian the Affairs, um, the president, everybody. He was the one who supported VAWA, who wrote VAWA, who got VAWA in there, the Violence Against Women Act. He made sure indigenous women were included. Now we need him now. He spoke about the MMIW crisis at the State of the Union. He needs to come now and step up and see what's going on on our res. Chris and Kevin, I want to give and you the it's last. It's happening on other reses too. I want to give you the last word as the parents of Micah. You are on the last day of the Micah Matters walk. Um, if you can talk about the significance of ending at the steps of the Lake County Courthouse, we just have about a minute. Um, yes, uh, 
for me personally, and I imagine for everyone else, um, it's going to say a lot. Uh, us walking from Arlie all the way to the outside of the courthouse because um, we want to hold them accountable. Uh, they need to step up. They need to uh, hear us and see us and the other families hear their stories and the frustration and not only them, but the world to listen to our stories and feel our pain, see our pain that we are trying to uh, make a difference and change and hold those in charge accountable. Lake County has, Lake County has a long history of corruption and, 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 and an unfair uh, you know, blaming of Native Americans, and it, we, it's got to be, it's got to be fair and equal. So we're going to hold Lake County accountable. We're going to ensure that the Montana Highway Patrol is accountable. Um, they have a long history of not investigating crimes against Native. Um, if it was reversed, if it's a, a, a Native on white crime, those are heavily investigated, heavily enforced. So there's a, there's a. A disparity there that needs to end. So that's that's our goal. Well, I want to thank you both, and again, our condolences to you both, Kevin Howard and Carissa Heavyrunner, parents of thank Micah you. Westwolf. And I want to thank Erica Shelby, tribal legal advocate for missing, murdered Indigenous women. This is Democracy Now. I'm Amy Goodman. As we end today's show, looking at the death of Olympic track and field star Tori Bowie, and an often ignored issue: the Black maternal health crisis. Tori was just 32 years old when she died at home last month. The Orange County, Florida medical examiner reported she was eight months pregnant and in labor when she died, most likely from eclampsia, a complication of pregnancy. Tori Bowie, who is black, won bronze, silver and gold medals in the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio de Janeiro. The CDC recently marked Black Maternal Health Week in April, noting black women are three times more likely to die from pregnancy complications than white women. We're joined now by Dr. Carla Williams, board-certified OBGYN, who opted to have home births herself, an OBGYN, after her first hospital birthing experience. She's also a birth and postpartum doula. Um, thank you so much for being with us. Can you talk about the significance of um, this enormous disparity between white women and black women dying in or before or right after childbirth, Dr. Williams? Yes, thank you so much for having me. Um, it's just, it's it's incredible the, the disparities that you've mentioned and just um, how black women are dying um, it, throughout the country, in New York State, in New York City especially, um, where it's up to 12 times more than white women. And um, it goes to show just that these patients, these women, their concerns aren't necessarily being heard. Um, there's bias and there's racism within our medical institutions and something needs to change drastically. I mean, I wanted to read um, Bowie's Olympic teammate, Tiana Bartoletta's um, tweet, which is just stunning after learning of her death. She said, as of June 2023, three of the four members of Team USA's 4x100-meter uh, relay team, who ran the second fastest time in history and brought home the gold medal, have nearly died or did die in childbirth. 
We deserve better. Hashtag black maternal health crisis. Dr. Williams. Right. It's unacceptable. You know, um, it's it, it's saddening and and it's maddening at the same time that um, that this is happening to black and brown women and that essentially nothing really can save you. You can be extremely well educated. You can be, quote unquote, high class. You can have all the money in the world. You can be, you know, record artists and, and Olympic medal winning athletes and really nothing can spare you. And I mean, the fact, Dr. Williams, that you're an OBGYN, that you yourself had two births at home after your first hospital experience, why? And how do you relate that to the disparities we're talking about? Well, um, why the essentially what what made me make that decision was having a bad experience with the birth of my first child in the hospital and experience experiencing discrimination within within that stay. Um, So when when that happened to me, even being an OBGYN at that time um, and feeling like I was getting subpar care and that my child was, um, I felt like definitely moving forward out out of hospital birth was um, what I wanted to choose for myself in order to have the best outcome. Uh, So when I think about that, um, I think that every every woman, every, every birthing person deserves to have an experience where, you know, they're taken care of, they're listened to, their concerns are validated, and um, their best interest is is at mind. Um, What is it that doctors are missing? What is it that hospitals are not doing correctly? And what does this have to do with recognizing the pain of black women? I feel like what they're failing to do is listen to black women. I feel like they're not listening to their complaints. I feel like they're taking things too lightly. I feel like they're intervening too much when maybe it's not necessary. Um, I feel like there's not enough collaboration in the care um, with, for example, midwives that could be taking care of um, low-risk pregnancies and um, and giving them more one-on-one attention that, um, that those patients need. Um, I feel like there has to be be more um be there has to more work needs to be done in order to um take care of the birthing population the way that it should be where you know um high risk pregnancies and high and whatnot is taken care of by more specialized providers and um we're taking care of low-risk pregnancies with um I want to end with your words on Instagram, Dr. Williams. You wrote, we need to start measuring outcomes on more than just being alive. That's the baseline. The goal is empowered and healthy. Dr. Carla Williams, OBGYN, birth and postpartum doula, had two of her children at home after her first hospital experience. As we continue to cover the issue of the disparity in the lives of black and white women, mothers, that does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.